welcome to episode 13 of the Analytically Speaking podcast series. This episode will discuss the world of fluorescence and luminescence, as well as standard reference materials used for these measurements. I'm Jerry Workman, the Senior Technical Editor of Spectroscopy and your podcast host. Thanks to all of our listeners for joining us for a deeper look into all things measured with light. Spectroscopy is the study of the interaction of electromagnetic radiation, commonly referred to as light, with matter. In this episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Paul DeRose from the National Institute of Standards and Technology in the USA, whose research interests concern the development of fluorescent standards and methods for validation of chemical and clinical assays. Paul's research has resulted in publications in various areas of fluorescence spectroscopy and microscopy. He has developed fluorescence standard guidelines and recommendations for ASTM, IUPAC, and the U.S. Pharmacopeia. He is also the chair of ASTM E130101 Subcommittee on Molecular Luminescence. We have invited Paul to our Analytically Speaking podcast to discuss his research on the advancement of fluorescence and luminescence spectroscopy. Well, Paul, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Jerry. Uh, great to be here with you. Well, Paul, please tell our audience a little about your history in exploring standards for use in calibrating spectroscopy instruments for fluorescence and luminescence measurement systems. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess my, my work in, in fluorescent standards uh, started in the late 90s uh, when there was a renewed interest in fluorescent standards uh, as fluorescence was becoming a more quantitative tool in regulated areas. And, and NIST was looking for someone to focus on this. And um, I was interested in it as well, so, that, so I've been doing it ever since. Um, I guess our, our focus initially was was uh, people were in different communities, uh, particularly in the pharmaceutical and chemical industries, were, were interested in day-to-day -day performance verification standards for their instruments, as, as well as uh, calibration of spectral shape and absolute intensity of emission. And, um, and like I said, you know, th th they were really got very interested in this because, because of regulatory requirements. Oh, that's that's very interesting. Um, why do you think standard reference materials are important when using spectroscopic measurements? Yeah, uh, standard reference materials, you know, are, are materials that have been assigned certified values uh, for quantities of interest, such as in this case, you know, relative intensity of fluorescence as a function of wavelength, photostability and, and absolute intensity in some cases. Well, what are standard reference materials, basically SRMs, and what's unique about SRMs versus other commercially available spectroscopy reference standards? Right, right. I mean, that, that, that's important because standard reference materials is actually, it's, you know, it's like, it's like a NIST trademark. Uh, so SRMs are reference materials that have been certified by NIST. And... Um, uh, certification in this case means that that all known and suspected uncertainties have been quantified, typically at a 95% confidence level. So this, so you know, so there there are other certified reference materials 
but I think um, NIST, NIST is very rigorous in our treatment of, of the accuracy of the values and the, and the exact uncertainties related uh, with those values. Well, Paul, to follow up on that, what are some of the key features required to create an accurate SRM? Yeah, I would say for, for fluorescent materials that you want to use for standards, you want them to be homogeneous, uh, free of impurities, uh, stable over time, and photostable. Uh, you know, I think those are four that you always want, no matter you know, what you're trying to do with the standard. Um, uh, also, you know, as far as making them you know, friendly for users and, and, and also useful, uh, you want them to be easy to use and also fit for purpose. Well, how do you go about designing and testing a standard reference material? Yeah. Um, well, I think the first thing you have to do is, you know, who's your target audience? You know, so you have to identify your target audience. And then, and then once you think you have a, a target audience with a, with a critical mass, um, you know, we, we, NIST can't work on everything. Uh, we, we don't have the resources for that. So, so we have to pick and choose carefully to see things that are going to be most effective um, uh, within commerce, particularly in the U.S. So, so uh, in order to, to do that, we typically have NIST, NIST workshop or workshops uh, with key stakeholders in, in the particular area we're targeting. So also the, the, the materials need to be identified, and then we also need to test them. Well, with all of the SRMs that you create at NIST, do you have a publication that goes with each one, or how does that work? Typically, yes. Typically, we have a publication. Uh, well, uh, within NIST, we have a certificate that goes with each standard reference material. And that certificate tells you, you know, what is what is the purpose of the reference material and and uh, what are the actual values that have been assigned and the uncertainties and and also things that you might want to watch out for uh, little caveats when you use them. Uh, but also what we try to do is is have a separate publication in the public domain that that goes into more detail as to exactly uh, the research that we did behind certifying that standard reference material. Well, that's very interesting. That allows you to sort of look at the first principles um, measurements and and that were made to create that SRM, right? Yes, yes, that's right. Because you know, because people. You know, people who use some people who use the the standard reference materials, you know, they just want to use them, and they they don't really care what what was behind the making of it. But but other people who I would you know term expert users, you know, they they really want to understand all of the um, the positives and negatives related with with that standard and using it, so they really understand how it works and and when it say it might not work, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a those are good points. Um, what are some of the challenges you've experienced over the years in making useful standards? 
Well, I would say I would say the challenges are are twofold. One has to do with instruments, and the other has to do with materials. So, as far as instruments are concerned, um, uh, you know, the the first fluorescent standards we made were were general application standards for calibration of fluorescent spectrometers. And in that case, we had to modify a commercial instrument in order to understand the uncertainties uh, to the extent needed to specify those uncertainties. And also, uh, uh, more recently in clinical diagnostics uh, for flow cytometry, we built had to build our own instrument because there wasn't a commercial instrument that would enable us to certify the values we wanted to certify. So, so that's from the instrument point of view. Obviously, also, you have to not only identify materials that, that, you, that might be fit for purpose for what you're trying to achieve, you know, and, that, and that can be very time consuming, uh, you know, but, but you also have to uh, characterize that instrument and the, uh, that, that, those materials and the uncertainties related with those materials. So there, there are uncertainties related with instruments and there are uncertainties related with materials. We put those all together into a total uncertainty related with the values we measure. That's, that's quite interesting. And it gets into a lot of metrology and, and statistics. Right. A absolutely. And that, that's a large part of what we do at NIST. You know, I think our, our, uh, the, our quality and, and value uh, for the for the uh, the communities that depend on us ha has has a great deal to do with just that. Well, Paul, you authored the NIST document entitled "Standard Practice for Determining the Relative Spectral Correction Factors for the Emission Signal of Fluorescent Spectrometers," and that's the NIST document NISTIR seven nine one five. That's reference one in our show notes for all the listeners. All of the references we discussed today will be in the show notes. Would you explain to our listeners what this standard contains and how it's used? Sure. Um, so this standard practice is meant to spectrally correct for your detection system on your fluorescence spectrometer. So, um, you know, every fluorescence detection system has a different spectral responsivity and fluorescence is an absolute technique, unlike, say, absorbance, which is a ratio technique where you compare, you're comparing, say, the, the light that comes out versus what went in. You know, uh, fluorescence is an absolute technique, so it's not, it's not ratio to anything else. And, and because of that, you know, if you measure the exact same sample on five different instruments, you're going to get five different absolute intensities and, and, and also five different spectral shapes. So, so it's a difficult challenge, and and so the in order to correct for spectral shape, uh, so you, so you get the right fluorescence emission spectrum, uh, you need to uh, correct your detection system for that for its responsivity, and um, uh, in in this standard practice, we we recommend three different techniques. One is based on a calibrated light source. Uh, the second is based on a calibrated detector, and the third is based on certified reference materials. Now, now you know one and two can work great, but but it takes a certain level of expertise to know how to 
to know how to use and set up a calibrated light source or a calibrated detector, where whereas certified reference materials, in our case, SRMs, standard reference materials, um, uh, look just like your sample. So you can just drop them in and measure them and, and use that to correct for, to use your spectral correction for your instrument. So if uh, most users would just require the, the SRM, right? Or would they require the other calibration? That, that, that's right. Most users would just require the SRM. So, you know, so, so I guess that's my point that, right, that, that SRMs are much easier to use than some of these, these other uh, artifacts or techniques. Uh, interesting. Um, one subject that is included in a well-written standard is the useful measurement geometry or the configuration of the instrument with respect to the sample for accurate measurements. How important is measurement geometry when measuring SRMs? Well, it's, it's actually very important, uh, particularly for absolute fluorescence intensity, uh, because, for instance, if you if you have a, you know, a 90 90 degree transmitting geometry where you're detecting the fluorescence at 90 degrees relative to the excitation light, um, you're, you're going to get a different absolute intensity than you would get if you measured that same standard based on surface fluorescence, where you're looking at the fluorescence coming from the, the same side of the sample as, as you excited it, you know, which, which might be used, say, in a microscope, for instance. You know. um, so, so the, I guess the, the thing that doesn't change that much going to different geometries is the spectral shape. So, so I think spe spectral shape is, is less uh, geometry dependent than absolute intensity. Oh, that's, that's new information for many of us, I think. Right. I mean, I mean it, your spectral shape can change a little bit. Uh, you know, because you may have inner filter effects going on in your sample or, or things like this, or, or, um, uh, you know, and there are also different uncertainties related with different geometries, but, but the actual values themselves, as far as the shape is concerned, uh, you know, it's, it's not that dependent typically. Well, as a follow-up, in fluorescence and luminescence measurements, the spectrum ordinate axis, or the y-axis, is in arbitrary units. Those are uh, abbreviated as AU of intensity. So how is one able to use such measurements for quantitative work? In other words, how does one correct emission intensity to make emission spectra useful for quantitative work? Right. Um well, you know, I mean, it depends on a lot on what you're trying to quantify. So I, I think, uh, you know, I, th I think most applications of fluorescence spectroscopy don't require that you actually know the absolute fluorescence intensity of a sample. Uh, you know, of often what's what may be most important is is knowing that that the sample intensity is not going to change over time. Or it's not going to change if I irradiate it for one minute versus five minutes, you know, you know. So that so so stability is really important there. And then um, there are also many, many assays which don't use absolute fluorescence intensity, but they use the the actual actual spectral shape. So that's why spectral correction is important 
uh, as related to the, the standard we just talked about. Um, so for instance, it, it may be important, uh, you know, spectral shape is important when you try to quantify the intensity ratio between two fluorescence peaks, where, where each peak corresponds to a different species, for instance. Um, so that, that would be a really important area for spectral shape and having the correct spectral shape. Uh, also, spectral shape uh, may be used as a finger, fingerprint for a particular species. Um, now, as far as absolute fluorescence intensity is concerned, you know, many, many specialized fluorescence instruments today do not measure a spectrum. You know, they may just measure an integrated intensity over a particular spectral region, which is, say, determined by a, by a, a bandpass filter, right? And, um, you know, in, in that case, corrective spectra can be used to, to correct for the, the spectral mismatch between, say, the, the, uh, the species that you're trying to identify the concentration of and, and the particular reference fluorophore you may use to quantify that. So, so for instance, in, in, in flow cytometry, uh, you know, where we're counting cells, uh, uh, for, for blood tests, say, you're, you want to know the amount of fluorescence that's, that's coming from an individual cell. And, and it's, you know, because of geometry, you know, so geometry is important here because each instrument is going to have a little different geometry. So the absolute intensity really isn't even useful. So, so, so how do you quantify, you know, how many fluorophores are, or how many binding sites are, are on, is on my cell. And, and you, you can do that and put it on an absolute intensity scale by, by referencing the fluorophores on your cell to say the number of fluorophores on, on a, um, in, in a reference solution. So, so for instance, we might say that the, that the, the fluorescence intensity of one cell in this sample is is equal to the fluorescence intensity of say 10 to the fifth fluorescein molecules and so that so that's another way that we we can we can get at absolute fluorescence intensity uh, w without actually doing like like spectral radiance measurements uh, that's that is really fascinating do you provide such standards and standard methods for this uh, that's, yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, we, we're developing them and, um, what, what we offer at the present time is, uh, in the area of flow cytometry, at least we, we have a, uh, a, a NIST flow cytometry standards consortium and, and members of that consortium, uh, can, uh, send us their calibration beads. So, so many, many of the people involved in this consortium are, are calibration bead vendors that sell calibration beads to people to calibrate their instrument. And so NIST, in this case, uh, offers them a measurement service where, where we uh, measure their beads and, and express the fluorescence intensity of those beads, which are meant usually to mimic cells uh, uh, to, to give, uh, 
what, what we call equivalent reference fluorophore values or ERF values. And uh, so we, we express the fluorescence intensity of a single bead in, in ERF units, which are in instrument independent units. Uh-huh. That's, that's fascinating. Just to remind our listeners that um, your contact information will be in the show notes that go along with the podcast. The next, um, I have another question is because fluorescence is such a sensitive technique, um, you stated that corrected fluorescence emission spectra could be used to make quantitative biological measurements in flow cytometry and fluorescence microscopy with the potential for online water bioburden and water quality analysis that's detecting microbes in water for toxicology and ecotoxicology of nanomaterials and for protein drug and biotherapeutic efficacy. So what do you envision as being the most important of these applications? Well, well I, I would say potentially they're all important, but, but at the present time, I, I'd say just because these areas are the most active, you know, as far as, uh, and they're the farthest along, I would say flow cytometry is really important. Uh, fluorescence microscopy is really important and, and water quality is really important. And, um, uh, you know, I, these are the three most uh, developed areas for, for quantitative fluorescence standardization to this point. In, in the other areas, such as toxicology and protein and biotherapeutic e efficacy, uh, there is great promise there for using quantitative fluorescence, but the applications uh, haven't been developed to the same extent at this point. Huh. Well, in your published paper, one, one of them was entitled Expanding NIST Calibration of Fluorescence Microspheres for Flow Cytometry to more fluorescence channels and smaller particles. That's referenced too in our show notes. You use fluorescent calibration beads for determining that an instrument independent fluorescence intensity scale is dependent on measuring corrected fluorescence emission spectra. Could you explain the significance of this work for our listeners? Sure. Um, well, fluorescent calibration beads have been used to calibrate flow cytometers for measuring bioquantities, you know, say such as the gene expression of individual cells for 20 years or more. Um, what has changed is that biologists and medical doctors don't just want to know whether or not a gene is expressed, uh, but want to know how much it's expressed. So, it, it, so again, it's, it, it's be, fluorescence has become more quantitative. And um, in this case, this is done by comparing, uh, as, as I explained already, the, the, the intensity of a reference fluorophore to that of, of a fluorescent cell label. And, uh, you know, in, in our case, uh, NIST has, has established with uh, key stakeholders in, in the flow cytometry community, the, this uh, equivalent reference fluorophore or ERF scale. Um, and and uh, also, as I mentioned, NIST, NIST is now assigning ERF values to calibration beads. Paul, thank you for that explanation. In another paper entitled Number Concentration Measurements of Polystyrene Sub-Micrometer Particles, that's reference three in our show notes, you describe the use of sub-micrometer particle standards for instrument calibration 
to measure number concentrations and size distributions of sub-micrometer particles. Would you briefly explain this work and what you discovered? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, so basically what we're trying to do here is that, you know, for for micrometer sized or 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 as as a biologist might say, the, those are cell sized particles. You know, uh, SI traceable techniques for measuring number concentration already exist. You know, for instance, you have light obscuration, quantitative flow cytometry, or or using a Coulter counter. And um, but but this this level of of confidence in SI traceability is not the case for instruments that that measure submicrometer size or or say virus sized or extracellular vesicle sized particles um, but but at the present time there's a growing number of instruments on the market uh, that claim to be able to measure num number concentration of these submicrometer sized particles uh, the the problem that that we identified is that is is that you know, I, I think other people were, were real aware of it, but we tried to quantify it, is that none of these techniques have a particularly strong SI traceability chain. So the uncertainties for each of these techniques is potentially large and not well understood. So, so what we did was we looked at seven different techniques that, that have the capability of measuring number concentration of sub-micrometer sized particles. So we're talking, say, particles that are a little under 100 nanometers up to 500 to 1 micron. Uh, um, the, the seven techniques we looked at were electron microscopy, flow cytometry, particle tracking analysis, uh, microfluidic, Coulter counter, uh, AF four malls, uh, dynamic light scattering, and a type of fluorescence microscopy. And uh, of those sec seven techniques, what we found when we actually did the measurements is that is that three of the techniques showed the best agreement between each other, and and so, and it also wasn't surprising to us that those three techniques that showed the best agreement were also the ones that one could argue has, has at this point the best traceability chain, even though their traceability chains aren't what NIST would, would consider perfect. And, and so, so, the, so we, we said, you know, what are we going to do with this and, and how can we actually certify values? And so the, the approach that we're, we decided to take was to take a consensus approach. Uh, uh, to, to to claim SI traceability using the three different techniques that agreed the best. Uh, so we take those three values from the three techniques, we average them to get to get a consensus value, and then um, we also assign corresponding the corresponding uncertainties for the three techniques are combined to give a total uncertainty. I'm glad we included that reference so that we can look into more details on that. That's reference three again. So, right, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that 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 work is is very exciting, uh, you know, for me. And uh, I, I think a lot of the people, uh, particularly like the, the people who I work with in, in flow cytometry who are interested in extracellular vesicles and viruses. So, yes, it's very relevant right now. Yes. And so, Paul, which of your projects stands out to you as the most difficult or memorable? Right. 
Well, well, I would say, you know, what I just talked about is is pro was probably the most challenging and is the most challenging for achieving accuracy. So, so you know, the number concentration and and potential ERF assignments of submicrometer particles, because because that's one of the things we want to do with these number concentration measurements is to actually do ERF assignments of submicrometer particles just the way we've done it with with micrometer sized particles. Um, you know, as as far as you know, some of the most painstaking work that I've done on fluorescent standards, I would say was was the initial work with with uh, with glasses uh, glass standards. You know, which are SRMs twenty nine forty through twenty nine forty four for calibrating fluorescent spectrometers, and uh, so making and identifying the best fluorescent glasses for this purpose. Was, was a very painstaking process. You know, we, we looked at at least 50 or 60 different glasses. So we had, we had to make those glasses and then characterize them. And then we picked five of them. Wow, the history of that is very interesting. <laughs> it, it is. And, it, and, and actually the, the history of that predates me. And, and uh, you know, I could, I, could, I could, we could do a podcast just on that, but, you know. <laughs> Well, we might have to do that sometime in the future. <laughs> um, what are some of your all-time favorite books or papers covering aspects of standard materials and their applications? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess uh, you know, going going back to what we just talked about and and the the history of fluorescent standards, you know, I, I always you know point to the groundbreaking work um, uh, that that was done at, at NIST. As, as well as a, a group in the UK, um, uh, the, the uh, NIST put out a special publication in 1980, which was called Spe Special Publication 260-64 on characterization of quinine sulfate dihydrate, which was the first NIST fluorescent standard. And, uh, you know, that, that, that predated me by, by almost 20 years. And, um, uh, that that work was done by Rance Villapaldi and Klaus Milens, and um, also there was work done by the UV spectrometry group at Cambridge in the UK, and they they put out a book called Standards in Fluorescent Spectrometry, which would was edited by J N Miller, and that came out in 1981, and and then there was also a book that was put out, uh, which was a compilation done by people at NIST. Uh, which was called Measurement of Photoluminescence Volume 3, uh, Optical Radiation Measurements. And, and that was edited by Klaus Milens and came out in 1982. Um, you know, as far as applications, you know, I, I always point to, you know, uh, pro probably the most single volume uh, important book by, by Joe Lakovitz uh, called Principles of Fluorescence Spectroscopy. Uh, which I think first came out in 1984, and I think it's on its third edition now. So, um, you know, I guess I guess as far as the work I've done that that I'm most proud of, as far as documentary standards are concerned, uh, I, I did a lot of work with Uta Resch at at BOM in in Germany, which is basically the the National Metrology Institute equivalent of NIST in in Germany, uh, and we did work on fluorescent standards for ASTM. Uh, and what came out of that was the standard guide for fluorescence, uh, E2719, instrument calibration and qualification. That came out in 2009. 
and then um, uh, we also did some some uh, publishing with IUPAC on fluorescent standards in their journal on pure and applied chemistry and a few papers on that came out in 2010 and uh, 11, I believe. And so are those those papers, Paul, listed on your uh, website, basically? Uh, yes, uh, I I believe they are, uh, but I I could give you a, a complete, uh, uh, I guess, re- re- bibliography if you need it. So. Okay, great. We also just point out to our listeners that your there's links to your reference um, to your website and to some of the other work that you've done. That'll oh, be, in, great, the, great, that'll great, be great. in the show notes too. Yeah, thank you. So what scientific committees or groups are the best to be involved in or to contact for detailed information on how to apply these standards and specifications related to the standards? Right. Well, well, I've I've already mentioned ASTM International quite a bit, and you know, if you had, if you had asked me this question ten or fi- ten or fifteen years ago, I would say that ASTM probably by far had the most activity in in documentary standards for fluorescence spectroscopy and spectrometry, and um, you know, but but mo- most of those most of those are for general applications. You know, there's 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 E three eighty eight. For uh, for wavelength accuracy, there's E378 for linearity of fluorescent spectrometers. There's E579 for for limit of detection of, of spectrometers. Um, I, I already mentioned E2719, which is the fluorescence guide, which basically tries to cover everything that you might want to uh, standardize uh, on on a fluorescence instrument. And then and then we also talked about. Uh, the, the NIST IR, which which was that was the original version, but it be, it actually in its later version became E E thirty twenty nine on on spectral correction of fluorescent spectrometers. Um, but you know, but I, I think what's really changed recently is that is that the groups that are most active now are in specialized areas. Um, so you have specialized applications of fluorescence. Uh, where there's more, so so you're dealing with focus groups, and uh, you know, and that that really attests to the fact that that fluorescence spectroscopy is a mature technique, and so so that the general application standards have have more or less been covered and well understood, whereas the specific applications are are, are yet to be tackled in many cases, and. Um, so some of some of the organizations that that I'm working with at present are the the NIST Float Cytometry Standards Consortium, which is 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 in the process of creating documentary standards for flow cytometry re, related with fluorescence measurements. Um, there's also the Online Water BioBurden Analyzer Working Group, which which is trying to tackle uh, the measurement of microbes in online water for making biopharmaceuticals. You know, uh, obviously they don't want microbes in their water, and and but in order to know that they're not there, they they have to be able to detect them if they are there. And uh, there's the Clinical and Laboratory Standards Institute (CLSI), which recently put out guideline H62 on validation of assays in flow cytometry, and then and then there are a variety of different international societies. Uh, which are interested in document in creating documentary standards, such as ISAC, which is the International Society for the Advancement of Cytometry, 
and um, and uh, uh, IEV, which is the International Society for for Extracellular Vesicles. You know, ju just to give you a few examples, you know, of you know how how fluorescence is really becoming more and more specialized, and there's there's a lot of specialized instruments out there. Well, thank you for that. That's a lot of information. Just to remind our listeners that the ASTM E standards are available from e ASTM. And uh, you mentioned quite a number of those. Yes. So are there limitations on how useful standards can be, for example, when measuring fluorescence materials? Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, st standards are particularly useful for instrument cali calibration and performance verification. Uh, but, but it is often very difficult, if not impossible in some cases, to make standards that have the same fluorescence characteristics as the sample of in interest. You know, so for, for, in for instance, you know, in, in, in the medical field, uh, you know, many people who are involved in, say, imaging pathology or, or even surgeons are, are interested in, in human tissue standards. You know, they, they want to know, you know, how does human tissue behave? And, and it's, it's, it's difficult, you know, you know, there, it's difficult to standardize human tissue. And that there have been some valiant attempts and some interesting ways that they've tried to, to mimic human tissue. And, but, you know, you, you, you obviously, you can't just use human tissue itself as a standard because each tissue sample is potentially different. So, so, so in, in many areas, it's, it's quite a challenge to, to even make a standard that would be appropriate. I understand. In um, closing, what would you tell our audience is the big secret about using SRMs for their measurements? Well, I mean, I, I don't know if it's a big secret, but, but I, I, would, I would give, if, if I wanted to give good advice, I, I would say be standards proactive you know, because standards are not simply tools to tweak or correct a quantity after you've measured it. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's often too late at that point to, to do it right. So, so I look at them as essential. They're, they're essential tools for understanding the characteristics and limitations of your instrument. Uh, and it's because it may be difficult to understand the significance of a measurement uh, until you first qualify the instrument with standards. Well, thank you, Paul, for this very informative discussion about your work. I'm quite certain our audience has learned a lot about standard reference materials, or SRMs, used in spectroscopic analysis. Your comments and research on this subject have been fascinating. And to remind our listeners again that in the show notes, there'll be a lot of information on how to find papers and contact you and look for other research related to this topic. My thanks to all of our listeners and production and editing team that's worked to make this podcast possible. We invite our podcast audience to stay tuned for our next informative analytically speaking episode. And remember what Albert Einstein once said, anyone who has never made a mistake has never tried anything new. Well, thanks for listening. <laughs>